Welcome to Exec Insights, brought to you by QUTX, Executive Education for the Real World. Part of our program in Executive Education are short courses, drawing from a range of expertise from across the university. Recently, we hosted a day on the topic of smart cities with Brooke Dixon, who was a previous guest on Exec Insights, and also Professor Marcus Forth. Marcus founded the Urban Informatics Research Lab at QUT in 2006. He's one of the world's top 25 leading thinkers and innovators in the field of urban planning and technology. Marcus is going to share with us some of the critical issues facing cities and the promise of smart city strategies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good. Are you busy still going up to Christmas? It is still quite busy, yes. Yeah. Usually people assume that once the, um, the teaching semester is over that people go into a quiet um, time of the year, but that's actually when the research deadlines are all looming. Yes, give us a sense of what your research questions are in your, in your research area. So I, um, I work across three main domains or disciplines, and we call this people, place, technology. So it's, on the one hand, the, um, the social sciences, humanities, some even um, arts influences. Um, broadly speaking, the, um, the disciplines that, that try to understand people and all the social implications. Then we have collaborations and, and interactions with people from the built environment, from urban planning, architecture, um, and, and design. And the third one is technology, computer science, human-computer interaction, interaction design. So it's, um, it's quite a broad array. And then within that, we, we try and find research questions that connect all three. So we are specifically focusing on, on cities and urban environments, and we've been doing this for, for a long time now. So questions that we pick up are around um, sustainability, energy reduction in domestic environments, for instance. We've been working on different ways and, and, and novel approaches to um, community engagement when it comes to urban planning and um, the kind of decision making that involves citizens in, um, in urban planning. And we've been looking at situated engagement and technology as a way to reach out to a broader section of, um, of society. Uh, we're currently interested in, in blockchain and distributed ledgers. Um, as oh, so a, in what way as an application for cities? Yeah, there's different ways that it can apply to, to cities. It's quite interesting. It can be applied to the um, technical layer when it comes to the deployment of Internet of Things devices and sensors. The way that they're currently communicating is through what we call the cloud, but the cloud is actually run by central corporations. So you would <coughs> usually have to subscribe to different cloud services and for Internet of Things devices to then um, interact and communicate with each other, um, different protocols and um, interfaces need to be set up. Whereas what blockchain does, it actually, um, the, the big thing that everyone talks about when it comes to blockchain and distributed ledgers is called um, disintermediation, which means that the middleman can be cut out and these different um, sensors providing data can actually um, provide the data directly to the recipients rather than having to channel through um, different layers of intermediation. There, everything seems to come to blockchain. I think this is about the fourth, the fourth does, conversation yes. I've had about blockchain <laughs> this week. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, those, those research questions that you just outlined, so issues about sustainability and so forth and the rest of your research program. So we're a university of the real world. So are these the kind of the questions that uh, cities are, uh, telling us that, that they require more knowledge, more information, um, more attention? Very, very much so. I think the, um, the smart city agenda really got going around 2012, 2013. And in those early days, um, early adopters, cities that were adopting a smart city mantra, 
um, even some very early examples in South Korea, for instance, that were supported by the, um, the South Korean Shabal, the um, large family conglomerates like Samsung and um, LG, but also um, South Korean telecom and, and other very um, large corporations. They were, they were very much looking at the technology piece uh, in isolation. They were not necessarily looking at the more holistic picture of what the city is all about. And I think we've now moved on, and cities have moved on from these early examples of just looking at um, deploying technology for the sake of deploying technology and then pointing the finger at different um, technical pieces of infrastructure and saying, there you go, we are now a smart city. It's not quite as easy as that. It's actually the way that the technology is embedded in an entanglement of, of social and cultural and commercial relationships. And I think the cities these days that, that also come to us, and particularly those that participated in our short course um, a couple of weeks ago, um, they're telling us that um, this picture needs to be um, complexified much more in order to actually arrive at solutions that are um, successful in driving workability, livability, sustainability, the kind of mantra um, of the Smart Cities Council. Um, and, and that requires then not just uh, expertise around the deployment of, of sensors, IoT, Wi-Fi, um, public screens, uh, and the rest of it. It's actually about how that can drive improvements with regards to social outcomes, commercial outcomes, and environmental outcomes. And, and that is then uh, a, um, a, a research and, and, and practice that requires um, a transdisciplinary approach rather than just having um, people with expertise in computer science or the technology parts. We are working with people from anthropology, from um, design, from urban planning, from, um, from the arts. And I think it's that fruitful um, mixing and really that, that nexus of those different types of relationships together with industry partners and with government partners where um, we produce quite um, interesting and exciting results that are different from what everyone else is doing. So walkability, livability and sustainability are sort of the outcomes I know that a lot of cities are trying to meet. Um, and there are challenges in all of those, I'd imagine. Um, so which cities do you look to, I suppose, um, and all urban planners have the cities, I think, that they look to and think, oh, you, you know, you're doing the right thing, you're making good choices here or applying technology well or um, working with your community well. So which cities do you sort of look to as uh, some uh, sort of a bit of a North Star, I suppose, um, in each of those three outcome um, areas? Well, I think the, the early examples are different to the ones that we are looking at now. So ah, in the, in the early days of smart cities, um, a lot of people get, got excited about, the again, the South Korean policy, the national policy around the U city or the ubiquitous city. And um, uh, Incheon was, um, um, for instance, a, a master planned um, city that had a lot of the um, smart city components. But I think these days, um, it's not so much those South Korean examples or the Singapore example or the examples that we see um, in, um, in the US. It's actually cities that are um, very progressive in the way that they implement different um, policy frameworks and different regulatory reform pieces. So rather than just focusing on the technology, it's the technology in conjunction with really interesting and innovative um, business models, different and innovative um, policy frameworks. And so examples and, and also places that uh, we are working with uh, in Denmark, um, a lot of the Scandinavian northern European cities are, are very progressive in their thinking. In Denmark, we are working quite closely with Aarhus, 
um, which is the second largest city after Copenhagen. Copenhagen itself is doing some, some marvelous work as well. Um, but particularly um, Aarhus is, is a great example because it's, it's a very compact city, but you don't necessarily feel that you're in a small place. So it has all the kinds of features that you expect from a much more metropolitan city, but yet you can, you can be on your bicycle and get everywhere quite, quite quickly. So that's um, the sort of accessibility or walkability accessibility, or bikeability, I suppose yeah, you call it. And yeah, and it relates to the workability as well, because you are, you are able to have a much more inclusive and, and accessible kind of way, not just to um, use the city as, um, as a way to, to go about your, your work and your life, but it's also about the different, um, I suppose, um, channels that the city provides to interact with their citizens. So they've recently uh, invested quite a sizable amount in building a new library that was um, awarded the best library building in the world when the city actually desperately needed a new um, airport because they're using, most of them use the, um, the airport that Legoland built for in Billund. And so for a city to actually, just actually say, we, we have a sizable budget, we're not gonna go ahead with the airport, we're still gonna go two hours further south to go to Billund, but we built this um, library um, directly at the waterfront. And for, for that to now have, to, to advance into this civic center where it's not just about um, the usual features of a library, but it's actually about a makerspace. It has incubation facilities, it has um, engagement spaces, the um, city is showcasing different kinds of ways the technology is deployed in various parts of the city to um, educate people about the different possibilities. And so it's, it's a buzzing hive of activity. Um, they are constantly extending the opening hours. And um, it's, it's just marvelous to see that, that kind of interaction. It's so like that would have required um, a trade-off of some kind, um, I suppose, and you'd need to bring the community along with you. So you were saying that part of your research is around strategies of community engagement. So would, um, would they have engaged some of those strategies in order to bring the, the community along with them? Yeah, I'm sure that there is still um, a lot of people that would have said, well, the airport would have been nice as well. But I think everyone is really pleased because in an airport, unless you're really a, a busy business person that, that travels on a regular basis, um, for, for people that are traveling on a more sporadic basis or for holidays, yes, you know, once you go to the airport, that's, that's then a, um, a bit of a, a hurdle. But um, that building and that facility is now accessible in the, in the city center. A lot of people use it on a, on a regular basis, daily or weekly basis and it has um, different options, opportunities really for everyone to get involved. And I think in the lead up um, to that decision and the actual development, there were also um, a lot of the um, kind of engagement approaches and strategies that we've been advocating used in order to um, work with the community in shaping the ideas in bringing together the architects, the local government and um, citizens and adjacent businesses. And there's also a history, I suppose, in not just Aarhus, but in Denmark more, more widely to, to not only um, allow people to participate in those decision, decisions, but also to listen. And I think that is sometimes a, um, a huge difference. It makes a small difference, but it's actually then um, quite an impactful one because you can have all the latest technology um, using social media, using situated technology to engage people, but if that feedback is not actually listened to and you don't as a, as a person, as a citizen that has provided that feedback get a sense that anyone has taken account of it or paid attention, 
then uh, and you're unlikely to, partic partici uh, to participate again yeah. uh, if you feel it's an exercise in uh, communication rather yeah. than uh, getting real feedback. Yeah, yeah I think our risk that we see in a lot of cases is um, kind of similar to the early um, examples of smart city deployments that were just about the, the cosmetics of having a, a showcase piece to say, here's our public screen. Um, it looks all digital and fancy, and now we can call ourselves a smart city. It's, it's not quite as easy, and I think the similar um, um, lesson to be learned from, from these window dressing um, approaches to um, community engagement, when um, fancy technology is used to collect people's feedback, but then there isn't really any um, further um, evidence that that feedback has actually been used to drive decision making further down the track. So I think um, people are getting much more emancipated, I suppose, and having much more experience when it comes to these um, kinds of um, things. And they, they want to see that dialogue, that we, we do have to close that feedback loop. Um, uh, given that everything's not about economics, I've, I appreciate that. But there's, um, is there a case to be made that those cities who invest in, you know, in uh, uh, strategies that build walkability and sustainability livability so that they attract, I suppose, uh, more investment in those cities. I mean, I'm thinking about the work of Richard Florida, which most of us, yeah. <laughs> that's probably as much as we know really about, about cities. And, yeah, it's uh, interesting that you, that you mentioned Richard Florida. So uh, he's, he's actually driving in a way uh, one of our latest research questions and uh, in a research funding proposal that we are putting together that has gained a bit of interest from um, different partners that we are signing up to this funding bid from, from regional Queensland and regional Australia. And so Richard Florida has uh, been quite instrumental internationally, but also here in Australia in driving um, urban policy. And uh, the kind of urban renewal strategies that a lot of cities have been implementing. In fact, um, my early um, work as a, as a postdoc here at QUT was based on the Kelvin Grove Urban Village, which was at the time a master plan community between QUT and the Department of Housing between the Queensland government. And Richard Florida was um, flown in as a, as a consultant, gave a big lecture and, and told, us about, yes. <laughs> told us about the creative class. The creative class, yes. And so his thing is about you, if you can um, bring enough sort of funky creative people, you know, good things will flow from that. Yeah, and that's they, right. You so need to have has, an attractive city that in that time, way. At time, he had these conceptual um, instruments like the Bohemian Index or the Gay Index of, you know, how many... Um, LGBT people would, would um, feel comfortable in your neighborhood, etc. But this year he's apologized. He said that, um, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of these um, policies of urban renewal have actually now in practice been continuing to drive gentrification, inequality, segregation, and, and misery in people's lives. And so he's, he's written this book, The New Urban Crisis, where he's reflected on maybe the last 10 um, or 15 years of these urban renewal policies that were all about mm. focusing on the CBD. That's or right, or what, what Bernard Salt calls the goat cheese curtain, I think, yeah, <laughs> which is like five yeah. kilometres from the CBD. So yeah. I think from, from that point of view, it's um, important to, to have a more um, diverse and, again, as I said, a, a more complex understanding of, of the different um, layers and the entanglements in cities. So cities are more than just 
um, computers. So it's not just the, the technical layer. They're more than just a business. It's not just all about us going to work and going home and going to work and going home. I think the, um, the richness of those cities where we go to on holidays or we go to when we, when we travel overseas even for work and we come back and say, oh, we've been to X, Y, and Z city in a, in a faraway place and you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had this here in, in Australia? So I think it's about something that um, allows citizens and, and people, residents living in cities to create their own city, to actually have not just the, the perfect um, urban development project that once it's completed, it's complete. There's nothing more for you to do. A lot of the um, older cities, they have traces of history and heritage and mm. you can actually see... We call see them pal the palimpsest, I think is the word there. Yeah, you see the yeah. Imprint. yeah. So it's that level of participatory placemaking that once you are living there, you, you in a way, um, the, um, the traces and the, the footprints of human activity are left over generations. And I think that what gives them um, their, their charm and their unique kind of, um, we call it the, the essence of a, of a place. So rather than being in a shopping center and you, you'd squint your eyes and it, you know, it could be in Chermside and North Lakes or it could be at Bondi Beach, they all look the same because they're all made to a cookie cutter model. Um, it's, it's about um, maybe at that time of development creating something that isn't 100% finished yet. There are still things for the actual um, inhabitants, businesses, local communities, um, school groups, etc., to contribute. And I think it's that contribution and that interaction that allows people to make the city their own. So you weren't born in Brisbane, Marcus, but, um, but you have lived in Brisbane for some time. So QUT, um, we have a campus in Canberra, of course, but we're, we have two campuses, two lovely campuses here in Brisbane. What would you describe as the essence of Brisbane? Um, Since we've used the term essence. Yeah, the essence of Brisbane. Well, it's, it's been changing. I've, I've arrived in Brisbane in 2000. I've been here now um, for um, nearly 18 years. Uh, I think Brisbane is still, for me, my favourite city. I've come here um, as, a, um, as a student doing my study abroad year at, at Griffith University first. And I was just you know, in love with the city very, very quickly because of the, um, the climate, the, um, the, um, the atmosphere, the, the attitude of people, the wildlife, the access to fantastic you know, natural environments, the beaches, and, and so forth. And that is still the case. I just think that um, there is certain development goals currently at play in Brisbane that need to be much more qualitative than quantitative. So we usually hear people in both industry and in government talk about um, numbers and percentages. And those numbers and percentages are not necessarily indicative of us making qualitative improvements. So only because we have more of doesn't mean that people are healthier, happier, um, So more, high, more high, uh, six-star hotel rooms, for example, as well, a measure? Well, yeah. So mm. it, it, it is useful to have some um, uh, evaluation assessment based on numbers. But I think in addition to that, uh, we, we also need to look at are people healthier? Are they happier? Is the environment healthier? Is it sustaining us? Is it nurturing us? Um, if we are just looking at uh, pure growth trajectories, then um, we are we are missing out on direction. We're just kind of saying we are growing, growing, growing. But and we'll lose that essence. We're we're losing the essence already. I think a lot of people are getting increasingly frustrated. And in um, in the um, current project that we are putting together, it's based on a. Um, Originally, it was based on a study that Bernard Salt 
the demographer working for, uh, for KPMG did last year for NBN Call. And he projected that in addition to the seed changes and tree changes, the generations that usually around retirement would move out of larger cities and go into the countryside or um, find um, accommodation um, closer to the coast, that there is now a third generation of people, not at the age of retirement at all, much more working um, age and, and generation still looking to build their careers. And they are the ones that he called the e-changers. So the ones that would take advantage of broadband internet access now across Australia predominantly, um, but looking for more affordable real estate, less pollution, less congestion, um, and being able to still maintain their startup or their freelance work or you know, their, their different careers in a creative industry or in a, in a digital economy. And so he's designated a whole bunch of different local government areas in regional Australia that would be um, predestined to, to embrace these, this generation of e-changes. And so I think if um, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney and, and other metropolitan areas continue to aspire to become the next Los Angeles or the next the you know, Tokyo, then we're probably all going to kind of say, well, this is actually now um, reaching a tipping point mm. where this is um, impacting on on my quality of life, on my um, work ability, livability, and sustainability. And I and might that's well where, go to Rockhampton. Yeah, <laughs> and so there, that's where now people are, you know, starting to, to consider um, other options where you, you have a, um, a more compact. I mentioned this example of Aarhus in, in Denmark, a more compact city that um, ideally is following a, a different pathway that has more qualitative KPIs in terms of how they want to grow. They do want to grow. But it's not this blind growing for, for the, the sake of growing. We actually want to grow things that, that are good for us, but we want to um, not grow the things that are bad for us. And I think that's the differentiation of values and ethics that is missing in those cities that are growing very, very quickly right now. Well, we should um, reconvene in maybe 10 years and, and uh, check in yeah, and see how we've yeah. done. So, Marcus, I ask all my podcast guests um, this question. So we're about to head into a Christmas break. What are you going to be reading over Christmas? Oh, well, being an academic, there's usually lots of things no, that we no, have to read okay. for, you know, for work. But um, yeah. I think um, I'm, I'm really interested, and this kind of goes back to the, um, the blockchain and distributed ledger kind of literature, because a lot of it at the moment is um, following maybe a similar pathway to what happened with smart cities, that a lot of the literature, both online as well as what people write in, in, in journal articles and there's some early books emerging. It's just about the technology. That people get very excited about what it can do for, for security and encryption and, and so forth. But I actually think it's really interesting to read more about the kinds of pieces that come that come afterwards. And uh, my colleague at, at RMIT, Jason Potts, has just been um, promoted to head up the RMIT um, Research Center in blockchain. And so some of his writings are really interesting. He's a um, evolutionary economist, mm -hmm. um, and and he looks at blockchain much more from a um, yes, social, cultural, yes, societal yes, I can point see of that. view. Yeah, yeah, well, I think I might hook, hook into that one too. Or not the kind of book I think he'd read on the beach, maybe. But <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> but maybe on a plane somewhere. Hey? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Marcus, thank you so much, and uh, we look forward to you joining us in QTX in 2018. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's executive education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.